Hello, and welcome to the Quadcast, brought to you by the Mary Christie Foundation, a thought leadership organization dedicated to the behavioral health and well-being of teens and young adults. We have a particular focus on college students. I'm Marjorie Malpedi, the executive director of the Mary Christie Foundation and the host of the Quadcast. Today, we continue with our special series on flourishing in college students based on the new report we released recently with Georgetown University called Creating Environments for Flourishing. That report was based on a pair of convenings we hosted at Georgetown, where roughly 90 higher education leaders, including 31 college presidents, examined strategies to better support the behavioral health of their students. Our guest today participated at the first Georgetown convening in September of last year and made quite an impression with his internationally acclaimed theory on positive psychology, also known as flourishing. Dr. Corey Keyes is a sociologist, psychologist, and professor at Emory University, where he teaches the sociology of happiness. Corey, we are thrilled to have you with us today. It is always so great to talk with you. Thank you, Marjorie. It's wonderful to be here. I appreciate it. So let's start with your theories around health. You once said to me, the world is stuck in a rut. Instead of living our lives, we're just pushing away death. All right. So tell us more Hmm. about that. I think there's a remarkable achievement in the United States in the 20th century that often goes unnoticed and is usually eclipsed by the computers and manned space exploration. And it's that we added more years of life expectancy in that that 100 years than all prior centuries combined. So Americans, by the end of the 20th century, were living 30 years longer than when we started that century. And we were trying to reduce premature mortality for very good reasons. But by the end of the 20th century, it was very clear we were living much longer lives. We'd added a lot of quantity, but it wasn't clear that any public health system was focused on adding quality to those years. And it wasn't until 1996, right, the last decade of the 20th century, where a very important study was released by the World Health Organization called the Global Burden of Disease Study. And for the first time ever, in addition to looking for diseases and illnesses that cut our life short, they also added a measure of disability. That is, if it didn't cut your life short, were there illnesses that really created a lot of disability? And for the first time ever, a mental disorder showed up on the top 10 list of public health priorities, and that was depression, and it showed up in fourth place. And, And so thing to understand about mental disorders is they are much like other chronic physical diseases. Once you've had one episode of depression or anxiety, and even if you've recovered psychiatrically in terms of psychiatric terms, the chances of having a second bout in your lifetime goes up 50%. And if you have that second bout, and even if you recover from it, now you you have a 70% chance that you're going to have a recurrence in your lifetime. And if you have that third one in your life, it goes up to 90%, you will have a fourth. And The problem was that we're not only chasing death, but now we're sort of trying to find our way to fix people with mental disorders. And I think it's time to focus on positive mental health and flourishing as a way to prevent the things like depression and anxiety that we can't fix because mental disorders like depression are preventable. And so that that was my point. I think if we really want to add quality to our lives, yes, we've moved on beyond death, but now we're focusing on the disability caused by mental disorders, and we think we can treat our way out of this problem. And no public health problem has ever been solved 
by treatment alone. And so my work is intended to address at a public health level, if we promote positive mental health, we can prevent a lot of things that we can't fix like depression and anxiety. And Corey, would you say that the current healthcare system is set up for basically doing the opposite, which is all the money, resources, and science are going into service delivery and care, right? And not enough on health promotion? Is that part of what your work has has brought you to? Yes. And I think we're stuck in a quandary right now because there is a high rate of mental disorders in the world and on our campuses. And it's clear that we need to provide more services, treatments, and even better treatments for people with mental disorders. I I think of it this way. Mental illness was the last child born when it comes to sort of health problems. And the last child always gets sort of ignored. And people with mental disorders, for good reason, and I suffer from it as well, have been arguing they need to reduce stigma and be much more open about it. So on one hand, there's a need to really invest more in mental disorders. But here's the problem. If we only focus on the fire, so to speak, and try to put out the fire, we're not preventing fires from happening somewhere else. And we need to look at a bigger picture, which is to say we need to complement treatment and better treatments for mental disorders with promoting positive mental health, because the evidence is very clear at a public health level. If you promote flourishing, you prevent a lot of depression, and that will ease the amount of demand in campuses and worldwide for treatments. So we just need to sort of take a breath and step back and say, well, we can't just fix our way out of this. Yes, people need more help, but let's start investing in prevention by promoting the very things that make life worth living, which is positive mental health. I want to ask you about that, specifically your definition of flourishing, because you're really considered nationally uh, and internationally as really the person who sort of coined the phrase. And and I don't know, I like to call you the godfather of flourishing because I, I love your work. But for our audiences, can you define mm-hmm. flourishing, Corey? What, what, is, what is it based on? Well, it's actually based on bringing together two traditions of philosophical approaches to happiness, believe it or not. So I'll start sort of with the ancient Greeks. I wanted to define and measure positive mental health, and there was nothing out there available to measure it. And so as I thought about it and pondered, well, how am I going to sort of ground myself in in theory and philosophy to think clearly about mental health? It, It led me back to the ancient Greek philosophies on happiness. And to them, word happiness is sometimes misunderstood in the ancient world. It was a philosophical invitation to think deeply about what makes life worth living. What is a good life? And so one tradition dates back to the great philosopher Epicurus, and he championed feeling more pleasure or positive emotions and avoiding unnecessary pain. And in the ancient world, hedonism was not a a negative term. It it derives from hedone, which is the term for pleasure and feeling emotions. And so it's very clear to me, based on that, that one marker of a good life is that people feel happy, satisfied, and interested in their lives. And that's one way in which I measure positive mental health or flourishing. I call that emotional well-being. But then there's another philosopher that also talked a lot about happiness and a life worth living. His name was Aristotle. And he said, to paraphrase, that a good life is that we're 
able and capable of functioning well as individuals and as citizens. And he used the term arate or excellence. Excellence refers to functioning well as a person and as a member of society. And so flourishing also includes a different kind of well-being. It includes psychological and social well-being. Now, psychological well-being consists of things like self-acceptance. Do you like most parts of your personality? It consists of things like purpose in life. That is, does your life have direction and meaning? It consists of a, a concept called autonomy, which is, are you able and capable of expressing your ideas and opinions? Do you have that confidence? And there's things like personal growth. Are you being challenged to become a better person? And then on the social side, we measure functioning well in terms of, are you able to contribute things of worth and value to your community? Integration. Do you feel like you belong somewhere in a community? So I use the term flourishing because I wanted people to understand when I use the word mental health, I was talking about the presence of good things. And there's literally a diagnosis for positive mental health or flourishing. You have to have one of the three emotional well-being every day or almost every day that's satisfied, happy, or interested in life. And then you have to have at least six out of the remaining signs of functioning well. And when you put that together, six out of the 11 functioning well with one out of the three feeling good about life, you are functioning and feeling good about a life that's worth living or you're mentally healthy. And so I remember in positive psychology at the first summit that I helped organize, I, I introduced my this theory it was in 1999 at the Gallup organization. Afterwards, people in positive psychology were rather critical because they said, one, we're trying to build a science around positive things, and you don't want to divorce it from negative things like mental illness. And I said, no, I don't, and I never will. There's no point. Second is you're medicalizing it. And I said, well, there's a good reason, because I want to derive and build legitimacy for positive mental health in the same way that psychiatrists have gone about diagnosing things like depression and mental disorders. And so I, I stood firmly that there's no point of a positive psychology or promoting happiness or anything positive. It doesn't solve a major world problem that's suffering. And I wanted to back into the same garage that psychiatry built, and so that they couldn't say that, well, well what I'm measuring is really subjective, and what they measure is really objective. We don't measure positive mental health really any differently than the way psychiatrists diagnose depression. So I think we've come a long way uh, from there, but I stuck by my guns. Flourishing refers to a diagnosis that renders you as mentally healthy. So Corey, let's talk about creating environments for flourishing in college students and the kinds of observations you have seen as a professor and also a scientist in this area about what I'm assuming is a gap between ultimate flourishing and what is being reported in terms of the prevalence of depression and anxiety on college campuses. And you know, the data is something like one in four, a huge increase over the past several years in these presenting problems. Mm -hmm. So, wow, huge question, but two part. One is, wh what are you seeing in the students who take your class, which is a sociology of happiness? And what are you trying to teach them, again, with the goal being ultimate flourishing on campus? I, I see a, more and more young people, students, being very anxious and fearful that if they fail even one time in one class, in one way, during college, that the life they imagined living will never be attainable. There is this sense that they, got, they have to be perfect. And 
I don't know a human being who has ever become a better human being without admitting their imperfections and addressing them. And so my ultimate goal in my happiness class is to get students to feel comfortable with their imperfections, to understand they're not alone. I was imperfect. I still am. I have lots of work to do. That's the point of life. It makes life boring if you're just perfect from the beginning. And so I want them to be more comfortable to address that. I remember this TED Talk. It's very famous now, and it made this person famous, Brene Brown, on vulnerability and shame. And there were two things that, when I first heard it, cracked me wide open and tears came out of my eyes. My, my heart swelled, and I knew this was the issue that we are dealing with on campus. The one is that she called them wholehearted people. They are vulnerable, and they believe that the things that make them imperfect, make them beautiful. And that in order to really connect meaningfully with other human beings, you have to be your true self. You have to be honest with yourself and others. And then that's where you get the deepest connections because you're loved, not because you're perfect, because you're imperfect and you're just like everyone else. And then the second thing she said is we need to raise a generation of kids with the following philosophy. We tell them, like us, you're imperfect. And she used the word, you're wired to struggle, but you're worthy of love and belonging. When we can do that to our students, pre-college and during college, they will be allowed to address their imperfections and really become better people. But education has to address that vulnerability. Yeah. So my question was just that. In your observation, these are not the messages that most college students are receiving. And certainly not just in college, but but way before they have done all of the things that they have done and achieved to get into places like Emory and most competitive schools. So what does that mean for our audience, which is a lot of higher education leaders who are committed to these concepts, but how can colleges and universities encourage flourishing in a way that gets at this issue? I mean, gives kids a break to be themselves. Hmm. Well, there's one thing that immediately comes to mind is from some work done by a psychologist named Carol Dweck. She did a lot of her work previously at Columbia. And she does work on mindsets, that that people have one of two mindsets about their talent, their abilities. Some have a very fixed mindset that you can't actually change in your abilities. You're born that way. Your talent is born that way. And others have a growth mindset. And they believe that their talents and abilities are malleable. And if they get the feedback they need and the guidance they need, and they can address their imperfections in work and in their own character, they grow and become better at things and better people. And then she wanted to know, well, how can you create a growth mindset in education? And one was, you praise the process, not the outcome, right? Oh, I like the way you're working on these things. And second, you grade people like, she used the terms, I think you're not quite there yet. So you would get a report and say, oh, okay, that's not quite there yet, which is to say, well, you're, you're making progress, but you haven't met a standard. And those two things, she found fixed mindsets and encouraged them to be growth and what colleges need. And college is designed for this. It's designed 
for people with growth mindsets who aren't into perfectionism and are vulnerable because that's what we professors are, are supposed to do, really help to point these things out where they need to grow, that they're not quite there yet, but you can get there, and that it's okay to take risks and fail. Now, if we can create a system of teaching and grading and, and a philosophy that around campus that, well, it's not how you begin, it's how you end, right? And I do this in my class by doing the following. For instance, you might have three exams during the semester. All right. If you're fine with the grade based on your three exams, you, you don't have to take an optional comprehensive final. If you're not happy with your grade based on those three exams so far, let's work on this. And you can take the comprehensive exam. If you do better on the comprehensive exam than your grade based on your three prior exams, your final grade will be the comprehensive exam. And so the point is, the first three exams might be indications of you're not quite there yet. But if you're willing to learn and take the feedback and work on things, I am going to judge you based on how you end through your comprehensive final so I, that's just some examples, but I really think we need to, to get a brain trust of faculty and administrators to start thinking seriously about changing the way we address the need for growth mindsets, feeling comfortable with imperfection, because otherwise college is not going to help you. It's going to hurt you. Absolutely. Focusing on the process. That's a very interesting example. But you're right, Corey, not to be negative, but we all know higher education is full of sacred cows, right? So there's a lot of institutional sort of crowbar work that would need to be done. But I know there's a lot of folks like yourself around the country that that are talking about this. So, so that's hopeful. While we're on the concept of creating environments for flourishing inside these campus ecosystems, talk a little bit about belonging, hmm. because I think that is an important part of flourishing, which you've mentioned, and it seems to be an issue, maybe it's just my observation, but more so with students feeling that they, they're they seeking belonging, but aren't really getting it in their cultures. And then I also wanted to ask you about how that's so particularly important for students of color, particularly at this point in time. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, this need to belong, we're, we're fundamentally wired that way. That's how we evolved. I think some evolutionary Scientists have, have argued that 90% of human evolution was under hunting and gathering system, which was small tribes, which was small groups of families interconnected where you didn't just rely on your family and you couldn't. You had to rely on each other. You were needed by others and others needed you in order to make it through another day. And that created a brain that's very sensitive to social reward and social isolation. There's this it's like social neuroscientist, John Cassiapo, who really, really pioneered this work where the feeling of being disconnected and being isolated piggybacked on our pain system. It was so important that when you felt isolated, you felt like you were in physical pain because that was an aversive signal to you that you needed to get back and connect because if you were disconnected on the periphery of your group, you were in danger. And when you feel connected, the brain it socially overlapped on the reward system. So when you feel loved and belonged, it's as if you're eating a wonderful piece of chocolate cake. You couldn't distinguish the two if you were just looking at a brain image. 
feeling belonging or just eating your favorite kind of cake. I think the key is to understand that we spent most of our time, 90% of it, under conditions where we were needed. Others, not just our family, but others who are not related to us, needed us to make through. And we needed others. And so that's the basis of true belonging. And my fear is that college students really aren't needed by really anyone on campus or to make the campus work. And the only place where they might find it is in genuine friendship. And then the problem there is they start out their freshman year at the beginning hearing about how great their incoming class is. And I've heard again and again, they leave that event feeling like imposters. I can't possibly compete with these people. Now I'm in competition with everyone. So there is this sense where where you're in competition with others. And so your ability to really need each other is sort of blocked off from competition. And then the other thing is that to make our institutions work, we send a clear message. We don't need you students to make this work. We're going to do everything for you. Now, I think there's some college campuses out there, I'm forgetting the name of some of them, where the students get involved in in cooking the food, farming, cleaning, Mm. and building. And I'm not saying we all have to go back to that. But in order to connect and belong, you have to feel fundamentally needed and important to making the system work. That's the truth of human evolution and the way we were wired. And so I think there is this sense of loneliness and disconnection, but because increasingly we're just told about, to go about our own work and, and focus on yourself and get your things done. And maybe if you're excellent at something, I'll need you in the workplace, maybe. That's fascinating. I hadn't thought about it that way. So there's no sort of inter dependence and and no. the, the joy that might come from your contribution. That that's that's very interesting. So I want to bring it back, and this may have to be our one of our last questions, but I want to bring it back to what's going on right now in terms of the disruption of COVID-19 and and certainly what's going on with the persistent racial injustice, the protests, there's so many confluence of factors impacting students' mental health. My question to you is it's funny you're teaching a course on happiness, but you also tell your students that it's okay to be sad. So is that Mm -hmm. more important now than ever since, boy, there's a lot of reasons to be upset right now? Yes. And and, and indeed, sadness and fear are normal reactions. And in fact, fear and sadness are two very basic emotions that have helped us evolve along important lines of, of excellence. Fear, right, is there because we might need to flee or fight. Sadness is there, believe it or not, to help us think a lot more deeply about loss and try to make sense of this life. So sadness functions sometimes by encouraging us to retreat and to examine ourselves, to examine our lives. And even Epicurus said we need an examined life in order to feel pleasure. And when things go wrong, we need to, to think deeply. And so sadness, it turns out, There's psychological research supporting this. Sadness is as important as the positive emotions like happiness to broadening our perspectives and making us ultimately a lot more creative. And actually, the roots of wisdom also come from really thinking deeply about sadness. I mean, I remember as a teenager, I was adopted by my grandparents and I lost my grandfather at the age of 13. 
So I experienced a really important loss in my life early on. And the ability to think about death that early in life and how the things that you love you will lose really encouraged me to, to really value the things when you have them rather than to wait. And I'm not saying I'm Mr. Wise or whatever, but I'm telling you that sadness was the basis of that. If I'd ignored that and not thought about it, I would have just focused on work and school and put relationships, important relationships secondary to that. Well, that is very wise. And it's good wisdom to pass on to today's students for sure. Especially when there are good environmental contextual reasons for them. They encourage you to think about what's important in life and never forget that. Corey, as always, this has been a phenomenal conversation. I've learned a lot. I hope our listeners have. It's always a pleasure to talk with you and just continued good luck with all your wonderful work. Thank you, Marjorie. And may all of our students flourish. Thanks so much. We'll talk again soon. Thanks so much for listening. This has been The Quadcast, a program of the Mary Christie Foundation. To learn more about our work, go to marychristiefoundation.org, where you can sign up for our other programs, the MC Feed and the Mary Christie Quarterly. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or review on your favorite podcast player. And please tune in next time for the next episode of Creating Environments for Flourishing.